Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. I don't think we're going to be able to spend our way to that. I don't think we're going to be able to save our way to that in terms of a country. We're going to need to innovate our way to that. We're going to need to drive its truly innovative breakthrough solutions to be able to build that ownership pipeline. I retired from the NFL, which really means they retired me. (laughs) So once you're cut, you get on with the rest of your life. That's what Paul Brown would say. It's time to get on with your life's work, young man. Welcome to Moving the Needle, a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create new pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about addressing long-standing economic inequities. And so, Jonathan, we're now about halfway through our first season, and we've had some really great conversations with guests who are doing impactful work. But something we haven't done so far is talk about why we really started this podcast and why it means so much for us to move the needle. You know, I love it. So let's start with you. Christopher, you come from a family with access to the highest reaches of power, who has had success throughout your entrepreneurial career. So why, as a white guy of privilege, did you want to join forces on a podcast talking about systemic inequities when that system probably benefits you most? You know, it's a great question, Jonathan, and super fair. And I think it's a really important to understand a couple of different things. One is a little bit about my background. So while I definitely did grow up with access to power and in the D.C. world and the world of politics and journalism, my parents really enforced for my sister and me a strong sense of social justice. And I think that has always informed my own path, my own career, my own choices for where I'm going. And it's led to some pretty formative experiences along the way. So I come from a deep 
background of social justice and paying attention to where there are pressing inequities. The second thing that I think has really led me on this journey is that as somebody who has had an opportunity to be able to start and grow high-impact, high-growth enterprises, particularly in the technology space, I started to recognize, especially as I started to think about ways that we could incubate and support other entrepreneurs getting started, that white guys like me who are starting technology companies and had access to the capital and the resources and the mentorship had a much easier shot at being able to start and grow highly successful businesses. And as I started to realize that, I started to dig in a little bit more to why. Like, why why are we in a situation as a country and as a community where people don't have access to those resources? And it doesn't take much, especially in today's conversations, to really start to get to a deep and better understanding of systems of racism that have led to ongoing and persistent barriers for people who are starting to grow and start, who want to start and grow businesses, who want to own their own home, who want to get into a livable wage job and just have barrier after barrier in front of them. And when I started to appreciate that through my own personal journey of understanding the role that race and racism has had in our society and how I, as a white guy uh, who comes from a family of privilege, has benefited from all of the advantages and where there have been significant chunks of our community, swaths of our population um, who have not had those kinds of benefits, I really set myself to the work of learning more for myself and trying to uh, be a strong partner and ally uh, in this important work. Um, and, I'm, and I'll tell you what, you know, as you and I have talked about, it is a journey. It is something that I am continuing to, to learn from and, uh, and, and I'm humbled by every day. Christopher, let's pull that thread a little bit. Your journey. You've been on it quite a while, just like I have. How'd you say you've evolved over the decades? Yeah, that's another great question. I think so much of this, as you learn, you start to appreciate where your blind spots are. You know, when I was young, I think that I felt that it was a equal playing ground, that uh, we were all sort of put on the same, uh, you know, on the same on the same field, uh, and we were able to go take the shots that we were able to take, and as I have gotten farther along in my career and in my own personal development, I've come to realize that we're not at all on the same playing field, Um, that those playing fields are remarkably different and that there are people who can't even get into the stadium, let alone on the field. I would say that my assumptions have changed pretty radically and my understanding of history has changed radically. Uh, I think my commitment to now using my privilege and trying to leverage that privilege in a way that can provide other people opportunity has magnified. And it is, it's still an ongoing process. Like I said, you know, I feel like 
uh, one of the things that I have also come to appreciate is that not having the lived experience matters. And so um, when I'm working closely within communities, for example, to look at ways to be able to remove barriers to entrepreneurship and small business growth, particularly in underconnected communities of color, like that's not my lived experience. And so being humble about that, coming in as a partner, uh, but not one who presupposes that I know the answers, um, I think has also been an important part of that journey. Um, and there have been a lot of really helpful friends and, and, uh, and mentors and guides uh, who, have, who have helped me in that process, including you, brother. I mean, like this has you know, been an important part of our friendship and conversation too. So I, uh, I, I, I credit, you know, part of this. I concur, 100, man. Yeah, Absolutely. man, it's, a, that's, it's one of the beauties of this partnership. And I, and, I, and I do think it's important then to dig in a little bit, you know, to your background, because it, it, one of the things that I think attracted us to starting this podcast in the first place is that we were coming from two very different places, but have arrived at some similar convictions and commitments to this work. So you have shared with me in the past, you know, your, your grandfather arrived in Detroit from Tuskegee, Alabama. He was part of the first great migration, you know, that for over a century, uh, you know, you know, more than a hundred consecutive years when he arrived in Detroit, he was able to plug into the Ford Motor Company, and your family's been part of that uh, company for the last hundred years. I mean, that's a, there's a deep, rich history that your family represents that is is true of many Black families in the United States. Tell me about how that background and history has impacted you in your own journey. You know, it's a um... I like the story, Christopher, of my family and uh, uh, my grandfather's sojourn from Tuskegee to Chattanooga, where he married my grandmother on up to Detroit. And um, interesting um, side note to that, they were married in 1919. And as part of our family lore, well, my grandfather went up to Detroit, but he didn't bring my grandmother right away and did not consummate their marriage until they left the South, both of them, and arrived in Detroit because he did not want his children to grow up in the South at that time. That's part of uh, what informed his journey. Grandfather was a minister, eight children, owned his own home, I've been fortunate that everyone in my life that was important to me told me fundamentally the same thing. You got to work hard. You got to show up. If you want a thing, you got to earn it. If you make debts, you got to pay them back. They were just fundamentally sound people. Everyone owned their own home. Everyone did, did had a life. And they were basic fundamentally sound people who cared about the nation, cared about our family. It was the kind of thing that really informed my journey. So when I became, you know, coming into, you know, civic roles and so forth, and particularly around the broadly defined innovation economy, I brought a different lens. Digressing for a moment, you probably know this. Chris. I would have paused you there, Jonathan, because I, I figured like you just skipped over a, a fairly important 
fundamental foundational part of your career, which is, you know, going, moving from Detroit, ultimately to the University of West Virginia, where he played football, then ultimately went on to the Cincinnati Bengals, yep. where he played professional football. And, and then you decided like, hey, I really want to get into civil rights and working with the NAACP. Like that is a, I find that to be a very interesting path because, uh, you know, it's like, okay, step after step after step, it feels like you're strengthening the hard work component, but then being able to start looking out and about and getting access to new kinds of opportunities that were presented. Had, talk us to, through that just a little bit. Yeah, and I want to be clear about something, uh, Christopher. I retired from the NFL, which really means they retired me. <laughs> so <laughs> once you're cut, you get on with the rest of your life. That's what Paul Brown would say. It's time to get on with your life's work, young man. <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciate the booster. But but family always interested. My mother was very active in the community. She used to you know, go to civic meetings and so forth. I look at, uh, grew up in a city called Romulus in the old civic league, a black neighborhood, the first Baptist church where my grandfather was a pastor there and led the first building fund to create the current church as well. So all of that was part of how I grew up. I so enjoy looking at the old ledgers. Reverend Campbell, Weekly Dues, 50 cents. Mr. Todd, $1. I mean, that's how it, that's how it was. You know, people who cared about their community and they built things, structures that endure to the day, to this day. So I've always been interested in these kinds of things and coming out of professional sports, continuing your education and, and always committed to there's more available, right? Here's the thing which puts us on an interesting or a collision course, Christopher. Similar to you, all the work in civil rights and civic and education reform, government, all of that stuff, we just weren't moving the economic needle. And we all knew it. And the only answer we had was to try harder. And it wasn't until the introduction to the broadly defined innovation economy did I say, whoa, here's where the elastic opportunities are. Not only do we need to try harder, we need to do completely different stuff. And that really put me on the path, changed the trajectory of my career, frankly, the trajectory of my life bringing that informed lens to the innovation economy led to the work of the last generation that I've been happy to participate in, contribute to, and it all is in an effort for people to make their highest and best contributions. And generally, their highest and best contributions will lead to two things that will lead to a third. Ownership, of valued skills, which lead to ownership of fixed assets, and ownership of skills and ownership of fixed assets leads to generational wealth. Ownership is key. So much of equity is about fairness in our current dialogue. We don't talk about the ownership dimension 
of equity in skills and assets, fixed assets, provide equity in, in the nation and in our economy. And that's where we'll close generational wealth gaps. Let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by SHRM. Our partners at SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. It's why Sherm made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. So you can learn more at Sherm.org. That's S-H-R-M.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to moving the needle. You know, and that gets us, amen to that, 100% amen to that. And I think that gets us really into the meat of the subject here in terms of what we're trying to do with moving the needle in terms of this conversation and the conversations we're having with other people. Because Mm -hmm. the challenge that we continue to see, as we know, is that that premise is critical. But I don't think we're going to be able to spend our way to that. I don't think we're going to be able to save our way to that in terms of a country. We're going to need to innovate our way to that. We're going to need to drive its truly innovative breakthrough solutions to be able to build that ownership pipeline, right? And to create the type of generational wealth you're talking about. And the challenge that I continue to see, and we can talk about some of those persistent economic inequities because the numbers are just not moving, as we've talked about, across so many different data points, is that too infrequently are we actually taking a systems-based approach to address these issues, right? So, you know, you've written incredibly eloquently and right on the money in your book, The Future Economy, Inclusive Competitiveness, about the critical importance about our, about our, our cities, our regions, and our country becoming inclusively competitive. And to be inclusively competitive, you need to be able to have that ownership of skills that leads to ownership of assets, which actually starts to move the needle towards generational wealth creation. But there's no way we're going to be able to do that with rifle shot programs, it actually is going to be a holistic approach that these communities need to take to be able to think about, all right, what are the systems that need to be in place? How do we get our talent pipeline lined up with opportunity? How do we make sure that those opportunities are truly inclusive and equitable by nature? How do we make sure that the capital flows are coming in the right direction in order to enable that uh, to, to really take off and grow? Um, how do we make sure that the data is demonstrating what the return on that investment is so we can get more capital flowing into that work? So what what's your thought in terms of like, how can we sort of really address the complexity of these challenges and take on some of these persistent challenges uh, in a way that really is going to move the needle generationally? 
Christopher, I think you, your initial comment really sets the right stage. Think about what we've done as a country, and in some cases as a global economy. We've built regionally based innovation and entrepreneurship ecosystems. And while the ecosystems are not magic, they tend to perform better than singular programmatic solutions. Those ecosystems are not very diverse. In underserved communities, largely absent any ecosystem or system-based approach to anything, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of singular impact programs with no intermediary hub anchor enabling function that nurtures the entire system. Yep. We have those functions in the innovation economy. We have all kinds of great organizations that do great work and their, their value prop is nurturing the broader ecosystem. And underserved communities, that infrastructure is largely absent. So you end up with just endless numbers of programs, many of them competing for scarce resources with marginally different services and so forth. And it just becomes a almost a violent competition for a few crumbs. Yeah, absolutely. It's not even not even thinking it's a shrinking pie. It's a shrinking set of crumbs. And, you know, I like one of the I heard recently somebody say that their community was program rich, but systems poor. And I think that's right on the money. Boom, boom. Wherever. Man, I've never heard it that way, Christopher. Boom. Yeah, I heard it, too. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is exactly the way that we need to be thinking about this, because we if you think about policymakers, you think about philanthropists, you think about people who are trying to do good in the world tend to go for the bright, shiny, programmatic option, but not thinking about this holistic approach. And it's happened, like you said, it's happened in the high-tech, high-growth sectors, uh, which tend to be predominantly white and male, which, as we talked about earlier, I was a direct beneficiary of. And where I first, once we started, you know, uh, some of the entrepreneurial ecosystem development activities here in the Research Triangle area, you know, we started a, to support that growth here in the triangle, mm-hmm. but it what didn't take very much time for us to say, there's no way that we're going to be successful unless we make this inclusive. And that's really, again, what led me to this conversation to say, we've got to bring these two worlds together, which is thinking about generational wealth creation with a systems-based approach. Uh, and we need to get more people thinking about that. Um, We need to get policymakers thinking about that. We need to get social innovators thinking about that. And we need to invest in those system solutions. Absolutely. And particularly, Christopher, the funder investor community. Yeah, exactly. The investor community is the same same way, right? And and they're they're the beneficiaries of that because at the end of the day, if you get more capital ready, opportunities, then they can deploy capital in a way that that's going to really generate that return on investment. But we've got to invest up front in that type of systems-based solution. And, that, and those are the kinds of solutions we highlight 
on the podcast and the evolution. Uh, and frankly, it is a bit of a trust as well that investor funders oftentimes invest in mission work for the innovation economy. We have great intermediary organizations that do mission. When it comes to underserved organizations, they fund singular programs with the report out how many individuals served. In the innovation economy, we look at systems impacts and judge the effectiveness of the hub and the intermediary function, not just based on individual numbers served, but the overall health of the entire ecosystem. And that is just largely absent. So when we're highlighting innovators, we're surfacing some emerging practices that really allow us to take what we've learned in the innovation economy, in innovation ecosystem building, and apply it to other areas of our society that frankly have not been able to access these systems as well. And that's the exciting, one of the exciting parts of our conversations. Absolutely. You know, you think about what we, the conversation we had with Aaron Walker, for example, thinking about creating that pipeline of black entrepreneurs and figuring out ways to be able to bring more capital to bear uh, on those entrepreneurs to be able to really scale and grow and looking at ways that he's been able to leverage his capital, which was he was first in towards really getting institutional capital to follow. Um, you look at the work that Tracy Plangian in social finance is doing, think about the systemic approaches to workforce development and thinking about innovative uh, financing tools and around the career impact bonds and things that she's working on. I love that conversation. What Harold Martin's doing at, at North Carolina A&T, you know, perfect example of how he's really thinking about this in a systemic way and is able to create I think, sort of a real game changer in terms of what's happening here in North Carolina, but a model for what's happening nationally. Absolutely. And we've been uh, uh, fortunate to have on the podcast, Jennifer Sheet, Dr. Jennifer Sheet, the first director of ecosystem development at the United States Small Business Administration. So even government, which is oftentimes a last or lagging mover in this space, is actually ahead of the game and incenting, further incenting inclusive ecosystems from the government funding and investment perspective. So we've had wonderful guests and continue to surface solutions. No magic. None of our guests have advocated for magic. You know, you do this, this is happening, it's all, no, no. But it does highlight different and new approaches that further extend opportunity for those who haven't had on-ramps to our nation's best opportunities. Yeah, and often these are underappreciated ideas, right? One of my other favorite sayings by a friend of mine named David Bornstein is, problems scream while solutions whisper. And I think one of the things we're trying to do is be able to say, hey, listen, yeah, there are some serious challenges out there, but guess what? 
there's some really cool, innovative solutions that are driving some amazing stuff, like what Linnea Richardson's doing in Chicago, for example, Chicago Trend and what he started to do nationally. I mean, so many cool conversations. So there's a ton to look forward to. I'm glad we're just getting started here, uh, my friend. I really feel like we're hitting stride uh, and invite our listeners to come along with us, continuing to give us feedback. We've been getting some great feedback along the way. Give us suggestions for other guests. Uh, that uh, that we should have on the show uh, and continue to prompt our thinking because as we talked about from the very beginning we're on a journey and uh, and we're we're trying to get out there and get more people engaged in this conversation uh, and uh, and really I think we're uh, we're on to something special here so you know Jonathan we we often end our podcasts with asking our hosts uh, about the books they're reading or things that they're reading and the music they're listening to. Uh, and so it would only be fair if, if we turn the tables on ourselves. So I'm going to throw it to you, Jonathan, some things you're reading now that are exciting you and, and music that is getting your groove on. A- absolutely. You know, um, um, over the last couple of years, I found myself as much looking back as I've looked forward, so to speak, and reminding myself, you know, how I got to where I am, and what are the enduring things, the thing, almost principles, I won't quite say laws, but principles that have informed my journey. So I picked up again, Good to Great, Jim Collins's favorite book, or a book that was great maybe 20 years ago, and I really immersed myself in it back then, and I think it offered some great lessons. And one of the lessons um, is, it's about the enduring physics of good organizations or good businesses. You might recall at the turn of the century, we were talking about the new economy and everything's changed. The business cycle no longer matters. Nothing matters. Everything is new. Well, we found out that wasn't exactly true because there are enduring principles to building a good, productive organization, be it business, social, human services, whatever. And so revisiting some of those things and one of the principles that really attract me is what he calls the hedgehog. And it's great for personal reflection as well. Think about your passion, what you can be best at, and what drives your economic engine. Think of those in three concentric circles. And if you're able to integrate in that in the intersection of those three ideas, you might be on your way to your highest and best contribution. So, yeah, I've been spending some time uh, reliving uh, and reacquainting myself with that work. It's, it's fantastic. You know, one of the other things I love about the uh, Good to Great is, A, he's also written an an addendum that looks at social enterprises and thinking about his co-author, I think, came back to something that was really about how you can bring those lessons and principles into your own life. And the other thing I love about that is the Stockdale paradox, which is realistic optimism, right? And this is exactly what we're talking about. Let's be real, but let's not lose sight of what's possible. Uh, all right. So how about you getting getting your groove on? What are you listening to, man? On a sad note for me, I lost my mother almost a year ago at this time. And um, the first record that she got me at probably 1970, 71, uh, George Clinton, Funkadelic record. Can you get to that? And I find myself listening to it more and more again. And part of it is it takes me back to that kid that I was, right? And, you know, I was a little 
tough little kid, uh, you know. And as you grow up and grow older, you refine that fire in the belly, but you don't extinguish it. And a constant check-in does me well. And probably my favorite line from that song is, you live your life on credit when your loving days are done. Checks you sign with loving kisses. Come back later signed, insufficient funds. So you better invest in loving relationships before you need to draw down those deposits. So that's just an example. I love, you know, my 80s hip hop, you know, Run DMC, Cool Mode. I, I'm probably stuck there. But what it does for me is remind me of that, who I grew up as and that kid that I was and never lose contact. Yeah, I love it, man. A little, 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 yeah, yeah. A little wisdom from George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, man. Yeah, like, that, that's my point. That is my point. Get wisdom oh. comes from all shapes and sizes. <laughs> I've seen a few very fun Funkadelic shows along the way. Absolutely, absolutely. Let me turn the table on you. Uh, you have an eclectic taste in reading and review you take. From my knowledge of you and working with you as a friend, you take good knowledge and from all kinds of sources. So I'm particularly interested in what you're reading right now. So a couple of things. One is that audiobooks have totally been a game changer for me over the course of the last, since really the pandemic, the last couple of years, and my book consumption has gone way up. And particularly because I've also started to reduce some of the, I think, overindulgence of the news cycles and news media and getting deeper into various things. And like you, I actually have been looking backwards and I've been looking forward. So I got a couple of books that have really sort of um, gotten me thinking a lot more deeply. One goes back to the conversation we were having at the beginning of this uh, show in terms of my own learning journey and actually relates very much to your own personal history. Uh, one of my favorite books of this year that I read was The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And for those who aren't familiar with that, it's all about the Great Migration from 1917 to 1973 and really pays attention to sort of the paths of various Black communities and Black families out of Florida and out of Alabama and out of the, in the, the Louisiana area and, and what kind of impact that that's had on our country. It, it's really remarkable. And there was a lot of that history that I was not familiar with. And, uh, and, I, and I learned a ton from it. And it's really given me a different perspective of even like what, what our industrial centers are. How did communities end up the way that they are? Um, how, how were there, there, again, these systemic barriers to families who are coming in who are so important to our industrial revolution, but yet got no love in terms of economic uh, opportunity that came along with it? Obviously, that coincided with World War II and all the other things that came uh, with uh, with some of the barriers that were placed uh, generationally. So, I learned a ton from that. And Isabel Wilkerson is a is a genius of a writer uh, and has just also written the book Cast, which uh, I would also highly recommend. The second book is um, one that really deals with the future. Uh, a guy named Kim Stanley Robinson is uh, getting to be a very well-known science fiction writer. I like science fiction because it gives an opportunity to sort of imagine what a future would be. Now, most science fiction, as people know, is tends to be pretty dystopic, tends to be 
thinking about how we're going to blow ourselves up and how our entire world is going to come apart at the seams. And one of the things that I learned along the way is that, you know, there's a difference between uh, dystopia and utopia. And actually, some ways that people have described it is that you can be the same conditions, but that dystopia is where people fight against and turn against one another. And utopia is when people work with one another. Mm -hmm. Um, So Ken Stanley Robinson calls himself a utopian science fiction writer, even though the beginning of the Ministry for the Future, Ministry of the Future, which is a book that he came out with a couple of years ago, starts in a very bleak place from a climate change perspective, where there is a wet bulb moment and millions of people die in India, but it galvanizes a collective response to climate change. I read it actually in uh, parallel with Bill Gates's book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson is a really interesting book and in how he talks about how these ideas could actually be applied to trying to address uh, climate change and climate uh, resilience in the future. So I got a lot out of that book as well. As far as music goes, you know, we've got a uh, we've got a, a duo here from Durham, North Carolina called Sylvan Esso that has just got me going, man. I love these guys. They are a husband and wife team. He's sort of this DJ that has this great vibe and great beat and uh, and just I really do think I've used genius a couple of times, but he is truly a genius paired with his wife's unbelievable melodic voice uh, who just can be transcendent in the direction she's going. So I love Sylvanesso. I've got this like the Sylvanesso Spotify radio station on constant repeat and just digging it. And then I also have been doing a lot of, I do I'm a, love to swim as you know, and, uh, and I recently got these headphones that you can use while you're swimming. And I love like deep house chill music like that is just gets you into this vibe and gets you into this like great groove while you're swimming or while you're doing anything, while you're working. And so somebody turned me on to these YouTube playlists that you can go to YouTube and there are playlists there. And uh, they're like an hour plus long of DJ sets. And I'll give you one, like I just downloaded this organic Afro flamenco house mix that is badass it's super cool so it's got this great vibe to it i find myself grooving on that especially when i'm swimming and i'm and i'm digging it so i uh i've I've been moving moving in some new and different directions and maintaining that eclectic feel for it all very good very good there's an underlying rationale based on what we both need at this point i need to stay connected to the enduring physics of what it takes to be a contributor in the world. Maybe you need something different at this point. Yeah, man. Like it's a, this is a, you know, I recently turned 50 and my mantra is to be strong, grounded, and grateful. And I'll tell you, it has served me well. Stay fit, stay grounded, especially through meditation and yoga and, uh, and be grateful for what we got. And I got to tell you, Jonathan, I'm deeply grateful for this journey we're on, brother. And I'm excited that we're doing this podcast together. Christopher, I could not agree more. Thanks for the opportunity to continue to build our relationship and to have fruitful, productive conversations with real go-getters who are making things happen, who are moving the needle in the world. Let's, t- let's take the people out of here. Let's do it, man. 
So we really appreciate you taking another listen to what we're doing with Moving the Needle. If what you heard resonates with your mission, come do something about it. Join us in this process. Join us in this movement. Leaving a rating and review and sharing our show with your network is appreciated. But what we really want is for you to get involved and find a way to move the needle in your community. Moving the Needle is hosted by me, Jonathan Hollifield, and Christopher Gergen. Editing and production by Earfluence. Music from Bart Matthews and cover art from Devin Lewis Designs. We hope each episode introduces you to leading edge change makers, informs you about what's possible, and inspires you to action. So get out there and let's do some needle moving shit. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes, but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. Although the economic narrative of the 20th century, in many ways, served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot, meet the needs of the 21st century. Today, we need all hands on deck, particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities, Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. We had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.